verse 16, chapter 17. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of, her pa- of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Again, there's only two categories of people in the world, those who have the mark of the beast Those who are sealed by the Spirit, sealed with the Spirit of God. In chapter 14, verse 11, we read that hell is for worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of its name. In other words, all who have an allegiance to the beast are marked, whereas all who have allegiance to Christ are sealed now and forevermore. And again, the belief that the mark of the beast is a literal tattoo, an imprint or literal implant is a view held by a futurist um, reading of the text that pertains only to those who make up the very last generation living in the very last seven years of, of history. And that view, unfortunately contributes to much of the hysteria that serves to actually discredit the Christian community in the eyes of unbelievers. That is, with all the books and the movies and all the crazy predictions that we hear year in and year out. It's very embarrassing, actually. But again, just as the seal or name on believers is obviously invisible, it is symbolic, so too the mark of the beast is symbolic and invisible. Amen? Uh, Babylon um, is the worldly city that tempts, seduces, and dominates kings and peoples of the earth. She is Babylon the Great, she is the mother prostitute of earth's abominations, chapter 15, verse 5. This great prostitute, she's arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, and she's also, verse 4 and verse 6, drunk with the blood of the saints. Her goal, verse 8, is to turn people away from God. Her influence is cosmic, and she has dominion over kings of the earth. This is her goal. 
She is the one, verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So again, the issue here is not physical fornication, but false worship, though the two do have a connection throughout Scripture. False worship and prostitution betray true allegiance. They betray true allegiance. We, of course, were meant to worship God. All humanity is made in the image of God. And when one gives oneself to the work of the dragon, that is in itself an act of prostitution. That's the picture being portrayed. To flirt with Babylon is to betray the ways of our creator, the ways of the one and only God. So the brilliance of Babylon, the genius of this metaphorical city is to deceive. And the breadth of her deception is global. Always has been. And always will be until the end of the age. The scene that we will see unfold in chapter 18 and 19. International comprehensive deception. And the only ones blind to it are those who are living in it. I should say those who are living for it. Amen? The most efficient weapon of deceit in in Satan's arsenal, the dragon, is the lure of the prostitute who peddles materialism as the bait of enticement, which, when fully grown, brings forth death, ruin, destruction. We read it this morning. Dennis Johnson, I quoted him last week, writes, materialism, no less than persecution, is the serpent's weapon of war against Christ's church. I heard a sad story this past week. A Christian woman was visiting um, her adult daughter's luxurious home. And this is a home equal to that of movie stars or superstar athletes. Her daughter had married a man who, who had prospered sumptuously And she said to her daughter, Honey, I'm thankful for all that you have been prospered with, but I really wish you would think about going back to the church. And without blinking an eye, she responds, Who needs Jesus when you have all this? She has been hijacked and conquered by Babylon the Great, the mother of all prostitutes, duped. So, such is the deception. And it's not only those who live at that level in that kind of luxury. She even deceives people who live on the street whose pursuit is this kind, maybe not this kind of luxury, but it's the pursuit of the heart. Babylon the Great. Seductive in appearance, repulsive in reality. And all she's about to receive, the scripture says, is fully deserved. 
And only one thing can save anybody from the grip of this seductress, and it is the grace, mercy, and love of Almighty God found in Jesus Christ alone. To, to deliver you from what Scripture otherwise refers to as what? The world. This is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. Those who conquer the world are those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, it was this John, the one who penned the words of the Revelation, who also said to the church, do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't worship. Don't pursue with a worshipful heart the harlot of Babylon. We, we know there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. Lord knows the church needs those who have money. <laughs> that, that, that's not the point. It's the pursuit of the heart. Because the world, John said, is passing away. And that passing away is what John sees here in chapter 17. And it's the reason he concludes back in verse 6 that I marveled at this scene, at this vision. You know, there's something about the fact that Eden was an agrarian society that is instructive for us in how cities are viewed in the Bible. It's interesting. Babylon is the pleasure-mad, arrogant world with all its seductive luxuries and pleasures. And within its walls, within the walls of Babylon, which is metaphorical, is the anti-Christian philosophy and culture. With teeming multitudes that have forsaken God, that want nothing to do with God, but want to live according to the lusts of the mind, the lust of the flesh, of, of the heart. So Babylon is, is fallen, sinful human society organized against the one true God, the one true and living God, seeking to seduce people away from God, set in opposition to God. That's what she is. That's what she does. So this is fallen human culture, Babylon, seeking to sway people away from God and his gospel. And it's intoxicated on its own self-sufficiency and a lust for more. This is what we see. This is what we see historically. This is what we see portrayed here. This is what we see in America. We're the richest nation in the world. You're all wealthy. I don't care where you live or how much you make. You are wealthy in a worldwide sense. And she promotes idolatry and she persecutes God's people along the, along the way. One, one contemporary analysis of this text uh, depicts Las Vegas as, the typical, as typical of what Babylon uh, may symbolize. And I think he has a point. I mean, they haven't labeled it Sin City for nothing. Right? That's their label. But ultimately, what happens in Vegas will not stay in Vegas. It will be laid bare. Amen? <laughs> Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Nothing hidden. So the fall of Babylon is first announced back in chapter 14, verse 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Again, chapter 16 and verse 19, God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now, those pictures of judgment, remember, in the Revelation, it's numerous pictures from different vantage points. Those pictures of judgment now reach their climax chapters 18 and 19, which we'll cover over the next few weeks. So Babylon, so far, is represented as as a prostitute who straddles this seven-head, ten-horned beast. Seven heads, ten horns, who's drunk with the blood of the martyrs of the Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. So uh, using apocalyptic symbolism, John signifies... The harlot doing the bidding of the beast as the two of them have forged an unholy alliance. That's the picture. They're in business together. Now remember, I think it was last week, we looked at the antithesis of the prostitute. The exact opposite of the prostitute is the bride. The bride of Christ. The antithesis or exact opposite of Babylon is the new Jerusalem. And remember how John saw these things. John saw the prostitute from the wilderness. John saw the bride from a great mountain. The harlot is arrayed in in purple and scarlet. The bride dressed in white. The harlot is seductive. The bride is pure. The harlot is adorned outwardly with gold, jewels, and pearls. We, we, we see a picture of her in chapter 17. The picture of the bride comes from chapter 21. The bride radiates from the inside. The prostitute is adorned outwardly. The bride radiates from inside with the glory of her God. Like a most rare jewel, the scripture says. The prostitute is attached to the beast The bride is attached to Christ. The prostitute will never be a bride. Thus the reason we're given this illustration of a whore whose destruction occurs as a result of the seventh bowl judgment. As God pours out upon the earth all his wrath at the end of the age. And then when the bowl judgments have have run their course, John says God's wrath is complete. When God's wrath was poured out on Jesus fully and completely, he said, it is finished. So to be in Christ at the end of the age is to stand justified. Being in Christ, to be outside of Christ, is to be judged by Christ with wrath. So the day is coming when all of this will be obliterated, And we we had a glimpse of this at the end of our time together last week in chapter 17. Notice verse 16. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. 
For God has put it into their hearts to carry out this purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Now, remember the woman depicted back in Revelation chapter 12? Remember the the dragon tried to devour the woman? That is all of faithful Israel throughout history from whom that line would come, the Messiah, the Christ, the child born of that woman. And the dragon was there uh, wanting to devour the child. But the child is delivered from the dragon. The woman is delivered from the dragon. The harlot in Revelation is destroyed by the dragon through the power of the beast. They're in cahoots. They work together. The beast is birthed out of the dragon. And she was sitting upon this beast as a vehicle for promoting her agenda, and then Satan's kingdom becomes divided against itself here in verses 16 and 17. And Jesus himself said, a kingdom divided cannot stand. So when the beast's worldwide influence begins to unravel, to disintegrate, he turns his anger on the woman and begins to persecute her. The dragon does. Through the beast. So the beast anger is turned on the harlot. As we said last week, not unlike a pimp who discards one of his prostitutes the moment her beauty fades. She's no longer useful. So he discards her. This is God using, as it were, the beast himself to destroy this woman, Babylon, chapter 17, verse 17. So... The overflowing lust of materialism revealed through this portrait of a prostitute, this is what she peddles, will be destroyed by the very one who carried her on his back and used her for his purposes. That's profound deception. He turns on her uses her, and turns on her. So the end of Revelation 17 contains a lesson about the depravity of man and how God uses sinful creatures for his own purposes and his accomplished will. So as this Babylonian kingdom is eventually divided against itself and destroyed, it's destroyed by the beast because... It is his very nature to destroy because behind the beast is the dragon who from the beginning is a destroyer, a liar, a murderer from the beginning. To illustrate this, I want to read from uh, one of Aesop's fables, the scorpion and the frog. Remember that? A scorpion and a frog meet on the bank of a stream And the scorpion asks the frog to carry him across on its back. The frog asks, how do I know you won't sting me? The scorpion says, because if I do, I will die too. The frog is satisfied and they set out. But in midstream, the scorpion stings the frog. The frog feels the onset of paralysis and starts to sink, knowing they both will drown, but has just enough time to gasp, why? replies the scorpion, it is my nature. 
to build upon that, uh, musician and songwriter, heavy metal legend, <laughs> Dave Mustaine wrote a song entitled The Scorpion based on Aesop's fable. And it says this. This is really exciting. My life is everything that feeds my thirst that causes sin. My wants are all I care. No shame and guilt. There's nothing there. Look deep into my face. I sell deceit without a trace. Fear not what I can do unless you want it done to you. As I climb onto your back, I will promise not to sting. I will tell you what you want to hear and not mean anything. Then I treat you like a dog as I shoot my venom in. You pretend you didn't know that I am a scorpion. True. Vivid. Real. That's some good songwriting right there. So Babylon the Great symbolizes man's idolatrous, God-rejecting lust in every age, which through wealth, celebrity, and luxury seduces people away from Christ, away from the gospel, and into the bed of this harlot, who, after the seduction, will leave them with nothing, destroying this woman, much in the same way the female black widow Spider kills its mate after he's fulfilled his commitment. That's what this is. Then, chapter 18, opens with yet another vision. Notice, then I saw. After, again, implies the sequence in which John sees these things. It's not the chronological order of these things. An angel descends. That's the picture. John sees this now. An angel descends from heaven. And as a consequence of this angel descending, the earth, notice, is, is illuminated by his glory. And, of course, his glory comes from God, reflected glory, which is to say this devastation, this judgment is the manifest expression of the glory of Almighty God in judgment. Chapter 18 is a funeral song. It's a dirge. It's a lament for Babylon the Great. That is for the world. And it's not to be read with a sigh of sadness, by the way. That's the picture here. It's not to be to read with a groan of sorrow. This is God's glory on display by way of judgment. So the lament is a song of doom. As God's glory radiates from this metaphorical city, and, and it's taken from other portions of Scripture. This isn't the first time you see it, which... Uh, as we look at other portions of Scripture from the Old Testament, it serves as, as a precursor to this final song of doom. It's an analogy for the world that is to be destroyed. So what we find here is, is a common uh, literary feature. It's found in, uh, we find it in uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Songs that are written to lament the destruction of great cities. Prominent cities like 
old literal Babylon herself. Tyre, Edom, Nineveh, Sidon. So John's lament is constructed from out of those lamentations, those songs of doom that we find in the Old Testament. And why does John do this? Quite simply, beloved, it is to show us that God will indeed act in the future in a manner altogether consistent with how he has acted in the past. So we have all these Old Testament references. All you have to do is follow your footnotes in your Bible to find all these other songs of doom throughout the Old Testament. So following God's threat to Babylon in the Old Testament, uh, we see that... uh, It was made an uninhabitable wasteland. Wiped out. So, that is to say, so certain is her destruction. The angel speaks here in past tense terms. It's amazing. The description in verse 2 are are standards of, or symbols of, of death and desertion uninhabitable lands. You know, after they dropped the bomb in uh, Hiroshima, I was in Hiroshima, and they, uh, at ground zero, there's a building standing because I guess when you drop the bomb, it actually disintegrates or it blows up like 200, 300 feet above ground and wipes everything out except the very thing that's right underneath it. So here's this building that still stands. I have a, pit, a photo of it hanging on my wall. Um, And there's photos, they built a park around it called Peace Park. It's gigantic. And you walk around and you see all these photos after they drop the bomb, and this is what you see. Devastation. Uninhabitable. Where only the vultures go. So in verse 3, John is using commerce, familiar then as it is now, is a way of describing the exchanges that take place here between Babylon and the world who passionately desires to fornicate with her. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passions of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. She is their lust. She is their desire. So this is metaphorical language for for idolatry. Babylon's wine has filled them with passionate desire. They have hypnotized her to serve her over against all others and especially and ultimately over against their creator. So they create religions. See, there's a reason behind the religions of the world, friends. It's Romans 1. And she has what they want, verse 3. They grow rich from her. Give yourself to me, she says. Give yourself to me. I promise to provide you contentment. I promise to give you happiness, health, and security so long as you pledge allegiance to me and you don't bring your Jesus with you, by the way. That's what she says. You have to adopt their philosophy, the philosophy of the beast. You have to be politically correct You have to hold, in our day, liberal views that inevitably twist Scripture to create liberal theology 
and you end up deceived by her. Because then you can associate with her. If you twist scripture, create a liberal theology, you can associate with her. Because Jesus then is not exclusive in the only way. It's okay to say he's one of the ways. They might let you in. But you must fornicate with her. And again, friends, this is not, what's being depicted here is not possession of wealth. This is the pursuit of wealth. Possession of wealth, again, there's nothing wrong with it. This is the pursuit. This is the goal. This is the object of worship. So if you have money, you don't have to feel guilty. Unless you're guilty. And he'll have a word for you in a moment. And he has a word for all of us. May we make no mistake about it. In verses 4 through 8, there's a threatening warning. There's a call for separation. There's a call for holiness. To whom, beloved? Notice, my people, the church. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven. Now, this is a warning issued prior to the destruction of Babylon. It's not like the whole world is falling apart here. Again, this is apocalyptic literature. It's not like everything's going down and there's a call for us to come out. We do not read apocalyptic literature in chronological order. This is just another... This is like, uh, meanwhile, you know, meanwhile back at the ranch. And we see that meanwhile back at the ranch kind of language all the time throughout the Revelation, right? We're going to pull you out of here, and now this is what's going on. This is a call for God's people. The revelation is not recorded in consecutive timed order. Verse 4, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. This is an echo from Jeremiah 51. You can mark it. You can go read it beginning in verse 45 of Jeremiah 51 through 52. So, moving along. To cite A.W. Tozer, who said when he was alive, trouble arises not when the ship is in the sea, but when the sea is in the ship. This is the church of Christ. Make no mistake about it, as some do. This is the church of Christ exhorted to separate from the alluring tentacles of Babylon the Great. Come out of her, my people. There are similar exhortations, not only in Jeremiah 51. We find them also in Isaiah 48, verse 20. Isaiah 52, verse 11. And Jeremiah 50, verse 8. So this is a call of separation. Lest the professing church, okay, lest the professing church be caught in the impending judgment described in verses 4 and 5. So the church is called to be in the world, right? Right? The church is called to be in the world, but the world must never be in the church. 
because it's a form of worship. Now, some form of involvement in the world is necessary. Right? Absolutely. It's actually our responsibility and duty to be salt and light in the world. This is what we're called to do. This is what we're called to be. But holiness demands separation from the the idolatry characterized uh, by Babylon the Great. It's not a call to abandon the world. We're not to hunker down in some cave somewhere or build some Christian community, you know, where we all live inside a gated community and share goods, you know, in each other's cars and, you know, buy groceries and share. I mean, that's... We can do that here, but we don't have to live together and isolate ourselves from the world. We're to isolate ourselves from worldliness. Which is, the world is not a place, it's a perspective. Worldliness is. It's a pursuit. Worldliness is a pursuit of the heart and of the mind. So here's Christ speaking to Christians... Because they are not beyond the reach of the Babylonian whore. You're not beyond her reach. I am not beyond her reach. The the question for believers is, why do I pursue the things that I pursue? The the question is, uh, what, what is the level of success I want to express? You know, whether one has great wealth or not. You know, some people like to fake it. Fake it till you make it. Right? They want to pretend they walk like they have a lot of money. They talk like they have a lot of money. They're just in great debt. (laughs) You know, I grew up with a guy. I grew up around some very wealthy people. A guy, I used to spend the night at this kid's house, and his father was a friend of my father. Dropped out of high school in ninth grade, and he, he was like one of the richest 100 men in America for like a decade. He's worth like a billion dollars or some crazy thing like this. And in 2000, I might have told you this story. In 2002, he was building his mansion, and my dad showed me it when I was out visiting them. And uh, he was told not to walk up on the roof and all by the contractor, and he actually fell through a hole and died on his garage floor. Billionaire, right? Here today, gone tomorrow. You know, I don't know his heart. I don't know anything about the latter years of his life. But I remember growing up, you know, incredibly wealthy. And then there's people who want to appear to be that, and they're not that. So you can have this pursuit and this desire and really have nothing but just a lot of debt. But God calls his people out. This is a command of urgency. That is to say, the extent by which you have been seduced or allured by her, enticed by her charm, come out. Come out from among her. That's the call. Remember the churches in Sardis? Uh, The the seven churches? The church of Sardis, the church of Laodicea? You know, they were not being threatened by overt physical persecution. But they fell prey to the seduction of Babylon. Jesus said to them, you have the appearance you're alive, but you're dead. 
You are outwardly rich, but you're poor, you're naked, and you're desolate, you're blind, you don't even realize it. That's what he said to the churches. And that's the problem. They they weren't aware that they were dead, blind, naked, and poor. So this is a call to God's people. Jesus said to both of those churches, repent, and only if you overcome will you inherit eternal life. Because those who overcome reveal that they're really in. It manifests in the end whose they really are because they overcome to the end. They persevere. Why do they persevere? Because they're preserved. If you're preserved, you will persevere. Materialism, depicted here, uh, violates the first commandment. You shall have no other gods, right? You cannot serve two masters. Why a warning? Okay, Someone's going to say, well, hey, hold on here. If their names are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the earth, why is there a warning to God's people? Let me, let me, uh, I'll let G.K. Beale help us out. I can explain it. He can explain it a little better. A lot better. Quote, theologically, from the divine perspective, the answer lies in the idea that God's plan to save his elect in the end includes a penultimate means of issuing them warnings, that is, next to last, of issuing them warnings and exhortation to which they respond positively on the, on the basis of divine protective grace, end quote. His warnings serve as a means to his ends in protecting his people to the end. That's what he's saying. When carried out, the authenticity of their faith is demonstrated by persevering and coming out. Amen? Again, Beale says this, quote, God delivers his people from permanent identification with unbelief by shocking them out of their spiritual torpor, their lethargy, through prophetic exhortations which serve only to harden those who are truly apostate, end quote. So it'll harden those who appear to be part of the church. They appear to be part of the body of Christ. They professed Christ with their mouth, but their heart is far away, and it hardens them. They're apostate. That means to walk away from what you once proclaimed and professed. Because there are, of course, those who profess Christ who don't come out of her. They are charlatans. They are actors. They, they talk a big game. They might know a lot of theology. In what they say, uh, there might be very nice people and definitely politically correct, and they talk in a tone like this quite often. Very nice people. They're apostates. They can't heed warning it's not that they won't they can't remember those who believed they they saw Jesus and they believed he did miracles no one ever doubted that but because they would not they could not John 12 Babylon is vanity fair its profile consists of idolatry Extravagance, immorality, sorcery, 
tyranny and arrogance that is worshipped. It's worshipped. This is their God. So the urgent call still summons God's people to come out of her in order to avoid, at the least, contamination by her. As I said earlier, we in in this room, make no mistake, are the wealthiest people on the planet. And if you think that you're not susceptible to falling prey to her, you're tricking yourself. Right? Now, the poster child for what's being portrayed here, I believe, is is found in Luke 18, where the rich young ruler comes and he asks Jesus, good teacher. It's good old Jesus, right? Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, obey the commandments. Well, I have from my youth. Oh, okay. Well, then sell all you have, distribute to the poor, and then come back and follow me. Notice Jesus didn't say, just repeat this prayer after me and invite me into your heart. He didn't say that. Because salvation is never one-dimensional. Amen? Because when this guy hears Jesus' response, he's stunned. He's sad. Shocked. And then what Jesus goes on to teach his disciples after the incident, after this meeting, is the very concept that, I, that, that, that defines the true conversion experience. That is authentic repentance. We learn this by what he goes on to teach his disciples. We read, number one, that's entirely dependent upon God. Right? So when a preacher preaches repent and believe, the authority of that word, the authority of the, that command can only be carried out by, by the work of the Holy Spirit through the proclaimed word. So he was stunned. Why was he stunned? Why was he shocked? Because Jesus wasn't his true pursuit. He wasn't truly pursuing Jesus. He was not pursuing eternal life. He wanted some of Jesus in all that he had, in all that he already worshipped. Jesus looked at his disciples after that and he said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier to pass, it's easier for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So astonished at this, they ask him, well, Lord, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? Jesus said this, with man, it is absolutely impossible. It's not possible for a man to believe. But with God, all things are possible. So that young man is the subject of what is being portrayed here of the Babylonian spirit, drawn in and deceived by the great prostitute of Babylon, lured and enticed 
baited, hooked by her prosperity and the affluence that she promises. So the longing for or the hot pursuit of materialism is a, temp- is a temptation that is no respecter of socio-economic positions. It doesn't matter how little you make. You can still be lured by this whore and enticed. So it is the harmful, destructive infection of materialism that is ultimately and eternally deadly, from which there is no cure apart from the invading, uninvited, overwhelming grace of God that comes to save sinners and pull them from the grip of Babylon the Great. That's it. This is the reason Jesus said with man it's impossible. In one-sixth of the sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ in the synoptic gospels relate to the problem of the God of money. That's why I wonder why it's so hard for Christians to give. Thus the reason Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Amen. Scripture's not done with this prostitute or this metaphorical city. And we'll look at it in the next couple of weeks.